0: This is On the Margins, a podcast about educational equity in North Carolina. We bring the often untold stories of
1: education in the state from margin to center.
2: Season 3 of On the Margin. In today's episode, we're talking about reading proficiency with two guests and hearing their perspectives on reading, its personal and far-reaching implications for student achievement, and a new law that seeks to change the way reading instruction takes place in the state. Reading proficiency has been tied to the amount of academic struggle in the early and middle grades, as well as dropout rates much later. It's also a main indicator for many schools and school systems of just how equitable education really is. There have been persistent gaps along racial, ethnic, and income lines when it comes to reading proficiency and data from 2018-2019 says that at the state level, only about 57% of students are proficient readers. In some regions of the state, that number can hover around 36, 37%, with a disproportionate amount of students of color not performing as well as their white counterparts. This past April, the state of North Carolina ratified the Excellent Public Schools Act and what many thought was record time. It mandates reading instruction in the state, uh, includes science of reading strategies and approaches, including teaching the letters, sounds, their combinations and other uh, language-based skills, as well as comprehension strategies and writing. No one knows how this will fully play out, but for those who work to improve reading proficiency at the local and classroom level, it is a right space to start a conversation, and that's what we just did. First up, is Dr. Monroe Richardson of Reed, Charlotte, a community initiative in Mecklenburg County that seeks to improve children's literacy, birth to third grade. All right. Dr. Richardson, thank you so much for joining us here for On the Margins. I would love for you just to begin by like introducing yourself, what you do, and then tell us how maybe you got into this work, if that is a story you choose to tell.
0: Well, thank you. Um, And I'm excited to be here. So I am passionate about uh, getting children reading well. Um, It is a gateway to success in school and opportunity in life. Uh, I moved to Charlotte in 2015 to become the founding executive director of Read Charlotte, a countywide initiative Uh, that focuses on improving early literacy outcomes from birth to third grade. We have a goal of uh, doubling third grade reading proficiency to 80% by 2025, and we can talk about that later. But um, this is exciting work. It's important work. It's essential work. We're one of over 300 communities in the United States and Canada that are focused on early literacy. We're part of the campaign for grade level reading. And closer to home, I believe there are about a dozen local campaign communities um, in our state that are all focusing on the same issue of early literacy. Uh, so we're, we're fortunate to be here in Mecklenburg County doing this work. Uh, there are a number of um, funders and organizations, um, businesses across our community that have, have and continue to support this work. And um, the great thing about reading is regardless of whether you were successful and had no problems as a reader growing up or you struggled, everyone has a story, but everyone also understands how important it is. So I never have to argue with someone about whether um, children should be able to read well by third grade. The question is, how do we get them there?
2: Awesome. So many truths. I'm going to follow up with some of that uh, as we go through this. And I definitely welcome you to tell us whatever... Uh, you know, pings your spirit, I'm going to call it, um, wow. in talking about that. Um, as you're thinking about kind of reading proficiency and getting the, uh, the number of third graders who read uh, on grade level to where you're saying 80%, that's the Read Charlotte goal, uh, right. what data or uh, statistics, anything that you can think of, do you find most alarming or encouraging when it comes to reading proficiency?
0: You know, I think what I find um, encouraging are not in the statistics, but around the statistics that so many people are paying attention to this. Um, There are a lot of important issues that um, people in the social sector work on and they struggle to get the attention of policymakers and um, people that can make a difference. And we have a lot of uh, sustained support around the the issue of um, early literacy. The challenge is, is, that when we look at the data for achievement on third grade um, reading uh, tests in North Carolina, despite all of the attention under Read to Achieve, we have not seen improvement. Um, at the state level, we haven't seen it, the improvement in uh, Charlotte-Mecklenburg schools. Um, we have a lot of districts in the state of North Carolina. I'm not familiar with the data on all of them, but I know that it rolls up into state level data that shows we have not moved the needle despite millions of dollars and lots of people talking about um, the importance of early literacy and reading by third grade. Uh, That's distressing, right? Um, Because it's not just about kids taking a test. It's also about what they're able to do or not do um, based on how well they're doing at the end of third grade. We know that uh, the curriculum from grades four to 12 is about 85% reading based. And so imagine a third grader who finishes the year and is not able to read well. Uh, I remember six years ago talking with uh, some elementary school teachers that told me about fifth graders who could not get through two paragraphs of text without being exhausted. What are the future for those children? I have no idea. Um, but that was, um, six years ago. So those children are now what 10th graders, 11th graders going into 12th grade. What has the experience been like for them for the last five or six years? Um, my hope is that they were able to get the help they needed. But what we do know is that the later you wait, the harder it is to intervene and catch children up. It's just so much easier to get them started well and on the right foot, um, But that's that that the the fact of whether you're able to read well or not at the end of third grade has profound consequences for both how children do in school, how they do in life and even work to break the um, cycle of poverty. Um, If you grew up in a low income household and you're not able to read well, most chances, the chances are, you know, when you become a mom or dad, you are you know, raising children that continue to be in a low-income household. We've got to help them break that cycle, and it begins by making sure that our children can read well.
2: Thank you, and I think something that you mentioned um, with the the teachers and how the curriculum changes after fourth grade, I was on Twitter some weeks back, lost train of time, (laughs) but some weeks back, and there was a a teacher, a middle school teacher who tweeted, I wish I knew how to teach students how to read. I'm I'm dealing with too many who don't know how. And I feel like I like she was just saying that like she didn't feel like she was equipped to even help them. Not only could she not give them like their middle school work, but she realized that overall I can't even go back and do this myself because I as an instructor, uh, well, she as an instructor, didn't even have those skills. So I think I think you raise a good point about that idea like what happens after third grade, uh, where we're trying to get them there, but the idea that if we if we don't catch them before, then it can have lifelong um, consequences. Um, do you have any stories from working with Reed Charlotte that kind of illustrate the work that you all do and the interventions that you make to kind of change those trajectories? Um, I, w- I wonder how, even if you would talk a little bit about what y'all do at Reed Charlotte to kind of sure. get us to understand what you're trying
0: to do sure so ReCharlotte charlotte probably is best understood as an intermediary we don't run programs uh, our job is to help coordinate integrate and align the work that's happening in mecklenburg county across dozens of organizations and we partner with all sorts of groups from the smallest grassroots to the largest one charlotte mecklenburg schools the county the healthcare systems and a lot of what we do focuses on looking at what is the very best evidence-based interventions That are proven to work um, for children that look just like the children that are attending schools in here in charlotte mecklenburg and we kick the tires on those interventions we compare interventions against each other and then we also focus on what does it take to be able to implement well to get results in the real world Um, some of the work we do is really about improving systems so uh, i'll share two quick stories one Uh, Sometimes it's about how do you scale up something that already exists. One of the um, impactful interventions we found uh, five years ago through our our research was a program called Reach Out and Read. And this is where doctors are literally prescribing books and language during well-child visits. Um, I love this program. It's one of my favorite. It was first created in Boston in 1989. We first had it here in Mecklenburg County in 1998 at Myers Park Pediatrics, and it just started to spread organically from doctor's office to doctor's office. In 2016, only 29% of children birth to five in low-income households in Mecklenburg County were going to doctor's offices where their doctors were using Reach Out Read. You don't sign up for the program. The doctor elects to use it, and every child that comes to the practice has doctors talking about Um, reading and literally prescribing a book, giving a book to families doing well-child visits. Um, There are 15 well-child visits from birth to five. 13 of those happen in the first 36 months. So it's a wonderful intervention for the first 36 months, which we know is absolutely critical for children's early brain development. The other thing that makes it great is that most people take their children to well-child visits um, and are more likely to listen to what the doctor says they should do for their own children compared to even their own health. Um, We went from only 29% of children going to clinics with Reach Out and Read in Mecklenburg County in 2016 to just over 70% three years later. We we wrote a business plan with Reach Out and Read Carolinas, which is the state organization that oversees it, and then um, developed partnerships with Atrium Health and Novant Health, had funding support from multiple partners Um, uh, and then um, to fund the business plan, and we were able to exceed our goal of going from 29% to 67%. We're like, let's get to two thirds. We got to 70% in three years. You won't see that impact show up in EOG scores next year, because so much of that work is front loaded in birth to three. However, we will begin to see the ripple effects of more children developing language early, more adults knowing about the importance of language development, reading with their kids, that's gonna start to show up between 2025 and 2030. That's a great example of systems change and and getting an evidence-based intervention um, in front of more families, especially families from low-income parts of our community that could really benefit from from this type of support. So that that certainly has been an early uh, success for Read Charlotte. Another example is uh, an evidence-based intervention that we found under a rock, literally. It's a great um, intervention for reading fluency by a professor at NC State called John Begany. And John had developed and tested this intervention, initially designed for classroom teachers. And what this is designed to do is to help kids who've got basic word reading skills but don't read with enough speed or accuracy that they're able to focus on what they're reading and understanding it, they're still focusing on how do I sound out each of these words? So it's designed to help build the reading fluency, which is really the bridge between knowing how to sound out words and knowing how to comprehend them. So we work with, um, with uh, Professor Begany and the nonprofit he started to bring this intervention to, Mecklenburg County, and we did that in 2018. So we we're just finishing up um, the third year of that being implemented in Charlotte. Um, it works. I was a tutor uh, for this program. It's called HELPS. Um, I was a HELPS tutor for two third grade boys the first year, 2018, 2019 school year. Both were um, English language learners, native Spanish speakers. I saw the progress, I saw the improvement over the year. Um, And so it's another example of an intervention that works. I estimate there's probably about 20 to 25% of children who in a given grade, particularly between grades two and three, that could improve their reading if we got them a timely uh, fluency intervention. And so it's an example of we found this under a rock. (laughs) Uh, It works. We proved out the system. We've had hundreds of kids get it. Um, The challenge is there are thousands of children that need help in Mecklenburg County alone. And so it's it's a challenge of scale. How do you go from program level results to serving enough students at scale that you begin to see that happen or or the results to translate into school level improvement and then ultimately district level improvement?
2: Thank you. That makes me think. All sorts of things, good things. So, just about the the ideas that you were bringing up and the timing that you described. The fact that you mentioned, like, reach out and read was 1989. Uh, that we get it in the Charlotte area, my part, like 1990, and then you start with read Charlotte, and you all kind of are able to make it within those three years of really concentrating on it, like get to, you know, 70% usage, right? I'm, I'm still thinking the timeline when I hear that, like 89, 92, I and mean, then it took you three years. And you mentioned this in this last example, uh, a really great intervention that you know, the question is, how do you scale it? Um, okay. As a person who has loved reading her whole life, I will I will own that. And as someone who um, also will say that as a English former English teacher who and writing instructor, I'm all about literacy in all forms. One thing that I am always kind of saddened by is that I have been reading what seems like these same statistics um, for years, decades even, if I want to date myself, and I have seen the the, the human side of it with the students that I teach, uh, the students that I've had to work with, and I just wonder, do you feel like we've been approaching it wrong? Like, how do we figure out how to scale this to get the improvement that we need?
0: yeah. So the thing that I think a lot about is one, how do we find what works well? Um, And, you know, I think one of the challenges is you can't just Google it. Okay, Google, tell me how to fix. (laughs) And and what I found is through the work we've done to really try to find what's out there, like what, what could we possibly know here in Charlotte-Mecklenburg that other people don't already know? And then what could we then do with that knowledge that's different than what other people have done in other places, right? Because otherwise we're just fooling ourselves that we can actually improve reading outcomes. And and I think there are answers um, to both of those questions, but I think more globally, you know, reading in the academic world is one of the most research subjects that there is. Um, however, in, in, in academia, there's also a lot of disagreement. Um, but in some ways, sort of your the incentives are to like to disagree with each other, right? The, I mean, part of it's the scientific process by which we develop new knowledge, but it's also you know some of the incentives is about I develop my own intervention or I do my own research. Um, and, and I wonder sometimes where the incentives are for us to consolidate knowledge around this works and now we're going to move on and, and answer the next question or build on that the same way that you sort of see that in science right around and I think we're benefiting from that right with like the vaccine development like the only reason we're able to develop vaccines so quickly is because of all the work that had been done before and people weren't questioning fundamentally like how do cells work or how do viruses work I mean those things were were given but in reading you still see people fighting right about things related to how do we teach kids to read and so how we consolidate what we know and then use that I think is a big challenge and educators are consumers of this, but they're not necessarily producers of like doing the research or developing the interventions. And it's really hard to like find what works and how do I know that it will work for me and under my circumstances. And that's just really, really, it's, it's more difficult than what it should be. Um, the other thing I would say is that I think that using what we do know and the data that we do have there's work that we could do around how do we improve, right? And so if you're implementing um, an intervention or a program um, to ask critical questions about um, what's the variation that we see in terms of the outcomes. So if, if school A is doing better than school B in the outcomes, what are they doing in school A that can help us understand that, that we might be able to use in school B, right? Or where are there bright spots that might, suggest to us that there are things that we can learn. So um, not to put you on the spot, um, but I've often heard um, recently um, homeless children, children that are eligible for McKinney-Vento as an example of why it's so hard to improve reading because you know they're dealing with housing insecurity and all the other insecurities that come with that. And how could we possibly expect either those kids to learn to read or for us to teach kids overall when you've got kids like that in the system. So what I like to ask you is to take a guess At the state level, guess what percentage of children, let's just take the last two years we had tests, like 2018, 2019. So over those two years, what percentage of homeless children at third third graders scored at college and career ready on the state EOG? Just take a guess. They're homeless. You know that. And all the other guesses, what would you guess would be how many of them percentage-wise?
2: This is not fair when the mic is turned on me. I will say that. Um, But to guess, Fifty percent. Fifty. Yeah.
0: All right. So that that's much higher. It's um, actually twenty three percent. Twenty three percent of homeless third graders scored at college and career ready on the state um, third grade reading assessment. Now that's actually higher than what I would have guessed. I would have guessed would have been lower, just because yeah. of all the challenges and because I know what the overall test score is. It's um, you know it's about it's you know roughly forty percent or so. Um, what, what's interesting about that, like if I were running a district, I'd want to understand what was it about those children that enabled them to get to college in Coretti? What was it about their experiences? What kind of supports did they get? And then how is that different from other children experiencing housing insecurity? And are there things that we could learn from those children and their experiences that we could spread to other families? Now, notice we didn't talk about um, waiting to solve housing insecurity first. We know we need to do that. We need housing, income security, food security, but yet there was something happening for those children even under those circumstances. Um, could we learn from that and double it? Could we get to 50% and more, right? By learning what were the things that were happening for those children who were getting in college already and those who were not. This is basic improvement science right? And in improvement science, variation in outcomes is the key problem to solve. And so we want to understand whether you want to call them bright spots or what have you, how do we understand variation and how do we how do we solve that? Because the variation you see in the system, what's on the top tells you what's possible under current circumstances. Um, we need to close those gaps, right? And it's possible, obviously, to look at gaps within a, a specific subgroup like children that are experiencing housing insecurity, but then also looking at gaps across racial groups is also really important as well. And and I would, uh, I I do argue that in Mecklenburg County and all of the other counties in North Carolina, that the achievement gap problem we have is a racial achievement gap problem, right? You solve that problem, you close that gap and you begin to make progress towards um, improving our overall um, performance on the EOG, but more importantly, children being able to read well and be successful in school and in life.
2: I'm sorry, I gave a really bad guess, now that I think about it, It's
0: okay, (laughs) it's okay.
2: (laughs) That was not a good guess. And I think I just didn't want to underestimate uh, students who were um, dealing with uh, homelessness. And so there you go, I overestimated. But I will say something you just said um, struck me to where you said, like, we think about problem solving and the science behind it and the strategies behind it, that the top is the possibility. That's right. Do you think that we have, we collectively, the system, um, have just decided that it's okay, maybe, that so many students won't be able to read because you're like, well, that's just how it has been and that's just how it will be. Like, do you think it's an expectation problem that's slowing us down? Uh, You did mention earlier that it could also just be the idea that we're, we're having the scaling issue or uh, just the difficulty of turning, you know, the science and the debates in the reading science into actual practical ap- applicability. But then I also just wonder, real talk, like is some of this is what happens when you just expect I
0: I think part of the challenge is, is that we haven't seen it happen, right? There is a narrative that will be the dominant narrative. It will either be a narrative of possibility um, or a narrative of limitations. And if you haven't seen it, it's it becomes very easy for us to buy into narratives that it's not possible, right? Until we solve these other things first. And of course, we know every we know that so many social issues and issues that have nothing to do directly with education per se are related. Um, And I do think that that's part of it, but I'm sure listeners of this podcast, you know, whatever district you're in, there's a teacher there that's making it happen. They are beating the odds and their children are reading well and beating the expectations. But it's, as you say, The challenge is how do we scale that? And how do we get that to be beyond a single teacher, whatever his or her idiosyncrasies may be, whatever it is they bring um, to that's happening in every classroom in that school. And it's happening in every school in that district and obviously every district in our our state. Uh, So moving it from the idiosyncratic to this is just standard operating procedures. I think that's the big challenge for us. But I think if you haven't seen it, then you believe, it's easy to believe, right, that narrative of what's not possible versus what is possible. Um, But, you know, every child has the same inherent capability. There's a small percentage of children, right, with serious learning uh, differences that, you know, being able to read well by third grade is is a real challenge. But in terms of capacity and potential, like anything less than 90%, we shouldn't be willing to accept because we can... Potential-wise, 90% of our children should be able to read well by the end of third grade. And that's even accounting for kids that have dyslexia and other challenges and need additional help. How do we develop and support the systems that are getting 90% plus of our children reading well? Because we know that the potential and and capacity is there, um, but children don't learn teach themselves to read, right? It's up to us as adults to to give them the opportunities to, to learn to read well. And unfortunately, today, still, not every child has a fair chance, right, to become a proficient reader um, by the end of third grade.
2: I like how you said what you just said. I think it leaves me thinking that perhaps this is fixable. And I'm going to get you on the record. (laughs) Do you feel like this is a fixable issue when it comes to reading proficiency? And we just need to tell ourselves a different narrative and then kind of push toward that.
0: Yeah, I know without question that we can fix um, the challenge of uh, early literacy. That we can get eighty percent plus of our children reading well um, by the end of third grade. I would say there's a couple of things that I point to. One, um, we are not leveraging yet all of the great research and evidence we have around um, effective reading instruction, and that's in two dimensions. One. We need to learn from the past things that we have tried and have fallen short and learn why it didn't work or perhaps just even take at face value that 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 approach didn't work if we are trying to do the same thing that we did before ask ourselves why do we think we're going to get a different outcome than something that was tried before um and so i think that's that's one aspect the second dimension is to really look at you know the really best um evidence we have around how do we help children learn to read i think that y- those two sides of the same coin around evidence is is an opportunity that we have not yet fully capitalized second i will say i think that the you know the the updated read to achieve legislation that has a focus on science of reading has a lot of potential for our state if we grab it um, if you look at the bill and you look at the definition of science of reading they're really fundamentally two parts. So the interior of the definition focuses on specific skills that children need to learn to read. At read Charlotte, we've been calling that the reading success pathway for the last five years. It's just a set of skills and competencies that all children need to master by the end of third grade. Doesn't matter what you look like, what zip code, what your native language was, there are no shortcuts. You gotta learn all of them to become a strong reader. But the other part of the definition are bookends. And that's really about how do you do it. And there's two parts. The first part is using evidence-based um, uh, reading instruction practices, and then the other the the, the uh, other end of the book in is differentiating reading supports for kids, meeting their individual reading needs. Really, when you unpack the science of reading, there are two parts. Okay, so there's the science of reading acquisition: how do children learn to read? We know a lot about that. But then I would say the other part is the science of reading instruction. How do we take that knowledge about how children learn to read and then turn that into effective reading instruction? Our knowledge is not complete there. So for example, we know a lot more about how to teach children to read words than we do about how to build their comprehension. And so we need to be clear about what we know, what we don't know, but we also need to make sure we're not confusing our understanding about how children learn to read and our understanding about how do we effectively teach children to read, right? reading start. It's two different but related constructs. And that's why I would separate that definition in the the, um, Excellent Public Schools Act of 2021 from the skills kids need versus how do adults help children acquire those skills. They're they're two different but related aspects. Um, But I will say then also um, there's work that we can do to better connect home out of school in classroom and it's an area that here in charlotte mecklenburg that we're paying a lot of attention to and how can we improve the supports that families get to be able to identify and respond to their children's individual reading needs and then how do we help out of school programs that are working with kids right all the time how do we help them better um, identify and respond to children's reading needs so if you've got you know, 10 different kids or 10 different needs, and you throw them all into the same program, and then you're trying to measure outcomes pre and post tests, that's not going to be anywhere near as effective as understanding Well, I got 10 kids, but I actually had three grouping levels, and I'm going to better provide reading supports that meets their individual needs. And then I'm going to make adjustments as we go along. That's, that's the system that we're working right now in Charlotte Mecklenburg to build, to help our community partners better know how to individualize reading supports. And helping families do the same thing at uh, do the same thing at the same time. When we're able to connect that with what's happening in the classroom, that's a powerful trifecta that um, we can um, leverage at scale to begin to move the needle. Um, piecemeal approaches don't work. Um, we've got to get to scale, we've got to serve enough kids and we got to be able to address that whole range of reading skills that are identified in that are identified in the um, Uh, In the updated legislation, to achieve legislation.
2: I like that wraparound approach. I do think a lot of times we forget the the village that it takes to actually, you know, you know, fill in some of those gaps. And as we're trying to figure it all out uh, for the things that actually are already working, Um, I do want to thank you for bringing up the idea that you know, knowing the science of how students like learn to read, and then this idea of comprehension and how do you teach them? There's a lot of different areas to that. So I I do appreciate you breaking that down. So I think my official last question is really thinking to the idea of the fix. And I don't even want to be that solution space, but that's where I am. Um, You seem hopeful. Listening to you, I am hopeful. Uh, I think that things are turning and that maybe we can get to where uh, we're taking this a little more seriously uh, for the people who may not get it yet if you could in any way that you choose to do it why do you feel this is important like it's 2021 should we be talking about this and we have pandemics going on we have economic strife. we have racial um reckonings and unrest and all of these things that are happening and yet i want to have a conversation about reading and you obviously did too because you came on the podcast uh if people are talking about it in this state for sure but um Why does it matter? Why do you think we need to be thinking and talking about this on a consistent level until we get some better outcomes?
0: Well, if you don't mind, I'd like to really ground this in a personal story. Um, So I moved to Charlotte from Kansas City six years ago, but the roots in my family run um, very deep, both in Charlotte and the state of North Carolina. my great-great-grandfather was born on a plantation here in mecklenburg county Uh, he told a story that got relayed down through the generations of his earliest memory being the daughter of the plantation owner being whipped for secretly teaching the slaves how to read Um, he later went to um, what is now known as johnson c smith university um, initially paid for by that very same daughter who helped pay for his education. Um, I found him in the census records at a time when many, um, Black people in Mecklenburg County could not read or write because it was illegal, right? When my great great grandfather was born in 1857, for him to be taught to read, much less to even hold a book. When a lot at a time when a lot of um people that looked like me could not read or write my grandfather my great-great-grandfather could and i could see his family could as well including my great grandmother who i do remember as a child um, when i was initially growing up in pittsburgh um, the the connections between the work we're doing today in the history here in north carolina and frankly the entire south It is hard to break apart that history from a time with the slave codes where it was illegal, right? um, To today, when you have um, so many um, Black children that are not able to read well, Um, it is hard. I, I just think of teaching a child how to read, teaching a Black child how to read, so they can read whatever they want and engage in whatever they want to engage in is one of the most anti-racist things that we can do. Um, and, and so I just feel compelled and I'll be honest with you, there are days I'm tired, there are days I feel um, disheartened because it's not a straight line forward. Sometimes it feels like you know two steps forward, one step back or one step forward and two steps back. Um, but I think about my great-great-grandfather I think about um, all the children who I will never meet in Mecklenburg County that needs me, that need me to continue to fight on their behalf. Um, and so while there are other things I can't do, I don't understand those issues with the same depth that I do literacy. I can fight for them for literacy and I can stand up for them and I can stand in the breach for them. And if we have, and when we have, more of our black children and brown children that are able to read well and be whatever they wanna be, right? Because we gave them those fundamental tools, right? Of being able to understand and communicate. Um, That is our contribution to the larger fight that we all need to be engaged in.
2: Wow. Dr. Monroe Richardson, thank you so much for the context that you just gave for the work that you do every single day uh, and for actually helping us on this podcast understand what we need to be doing in theory and then also in practice to make sure that our reading proficiency numbers go up and that we're holding folks accountable to making sure that some work gets done. Um, I I don't know. I feel goose pimples right now because I really have always... Uh, equated the idea of literacy deliberation. And you're right, if we are thinking about being an anti-racist society, if we wanna do this work, we have to make sure that our students black, brown and whatever can read and get them there. So thank you so much.
0: Thanks for having me.
2: Wow. After that powerful conversation, I was able to sit with Stephanie Stanek, a sixth grade ELA teacher who has her own unique journey to reading proficiency and some insight into what she sees working and not working with the students in her classroom who are not reading on grade level once they reach her.
1: Hey Camille, thanks for having me. Um, so my name is Stephanie Stanek and I am a sixth grade reading teacher here in Charlotte, North Carolina. I work for the Charlotte Mecklenburg School System. I uh, had a really long unconventional journey to literacy. I did not learn how to read until I was 17 years old. Um, when I say I did not know how to read, I could probably put together about that time looking back, um, close to a paragraph or two very slowly. So I was very behind. I had a sweet little nun. I went to a all girls Catholic high school in Savannah, Georgia. I had a sweet little nun tell me, it's not that you don't know things. You just don't know how to read yet. So... She asked me what I like to read and um, found out what I was interested in and then recommended me a book and told me, don't worry how long it takes, take your time, just read the book from start to finish. And it took me about a month, month and a half, I remember. And after that, it was easy, smooth sailing. Um, Well, I don't want to say easy. It, (laughs) It wasn't like it happened overnight, but it really grabbed my love for reading. And I was able to get caught up in academics and become successful academically. I went on to college, which um, was looking a little grim at the time of seventeen, not being able to how to read. Um, and then later on, went to pursue education so that I could be a teacher, like Sweet Sister Gilmary, and. Um, you know, went into. I wanted to go into literacy so that I could help students like myself that were getting kind of passed along throughout life. Um, and now I am pursuing my doctorate in literacy.
2: <laughs> that I think is a fascinating story, and there's so many um, parts of it that I, I want to tease out a little bit because I th- think you you speak to the, you know, power and importance of like having a teacher who can intervene, the idea of kind of getting texts that you connect to. Uh, But I want to like go back a little bit. Okay. You Mm -hmm. were 16 before you got into, you said uh, Sister Gilmary's class, more or less? Yes, yes. So in like the previous years, like when you were elementary age, middle school age, early high school, um, did you realize that you were behind and did anybody ever say anything to you about like your reading proficiency? Like were y'all tested and you were like, oh, my test score is low. Like, how did
1: that work? Yes, my test scores were always lower. Um, But, you know, I hate to break this to everyone that doesn't know. uh, Nobody really takes test scores seriously. Um, So they just didn't really take that take that really to heart. I did, um, seek a reading interventionist. I believe I was in first grade, but again, they just pass you along. Um, we like to say that we give reading interventions and we try our hardest, but, um, I don't know that they're absolutely successful. Um, I don't think that they're consistent and that they follow, the student consistently from year to year. I believe that teachers are giving um, their best with the time that they have, but they're not able to consistently follow students year to year because your ultimate goal is you don't want a student in reading intervention or MTSS for longer than a uh, year or two. I'm
2: nodding my head, but the idea of the idea of you know, the interventions, maybe not being consistent and that Mm -hmm. as a teacher, sometimes like you are trying, but you can't always kind of do every single thing that you need to do, especially if you're teaching, let's say, you know, eighth grade literature, and you realize that you have a student who probably can't read very well on the third grade level. It's like, how am I supposed to like weigh what I'm supposed to do in that case? Uh, You teach now. Yes. Right. Yes. Tell me a little bit about like what happens in your classroom? Are you able to uh, see this kind of playing out? What do you do differently for your students if if you you can?
1: So um, in middle school and high school, you know, it's even more difficult because you only have um, one class block for about an hour. Some people might be lucky and have them for an hour and a half. Um, So that still just is not enough time. We just don't have enough time um, and reading literacy obviously is so important. It's such a skill that you need um growing as you grow older and as you're an adult to be successful in life. So you know, teachers' hands are really tied we're We're expected to do interventions and we can do them to the best of our ability, but in My dream world, um, we would have enough funding in our districts for reading interventionists to come back so that, say, for example, a reading interventionist would have the same group of students for three years, um, and she or he could pull students um for a given amount of time and give them that extra reading work um that extra help that they need and then they know the student they know the student's skills they know the student's um weaknesses they knew they see where the areas of growth are for and then that child can really receive that reading intervention um, at a quality level that really will will we would really see success from them um, in my classroom, I really try to stay true to reading interventions as much as possible. Just I think that too comes from my personal struggles as a reader. Um, and in sixth grade, um, especially in a low economic status school, if you do not uh, leave sixth grade on grade level for reading, um, your chances of graduating high school or not getting held back or failing a class drop by like 50%. So, or increase, sorry, excuse me, increase by 50%. So that's crucial in the sixth grade. So I really try to meet the student where they're at um, without watering down, um, the content because at the end of the day, they're not testing on a grade level below they're testing at grade level. So if they're not there, it's not like they're giving them a second grade reading test. If that's what they're coming to me as, um, like you said earlier, it's very important, um, to find out what they love and, um, it just takes one book to get them to love reading. Tell me, I'm gonna come back to your
2: classroom practice. Um, <laughs> and a new system that, you know, North Carolina is looking into to teach reading. Mm-hmm. But you mentioned that one book, can you tell me um, the story of that first book that you said it took you a little while and how it kind of transformed things for you?
1: Yes. Um, I always love, uh, telling this story because it was a Catholic nun (laughs) that recommended me this book and it's a love story. Um, and it was the summer I turned pretty by Jenny Han and she is a wonderful author. Um, and it's, I always wig out and geek out because when I'm able to like hook my students on, um, this book or any of her other books, I'm able to really like just kind of have like a mini book club with them. But, um, after that I read all the Jenny Han books and then I was able to get into other authors and that are love books too, and, um, romance novels. And so it's just finding that one, one book that really helps a child read. And then after that, it's really easy after that it's game over. You can get them to read what, thousands of books because then you're able to recommend them to the next author or a similar, um, series. And, and then they stay interested.
2: The reader in me, the English teacher in me <laughs> smiles <laughs> to hear you say that like, Oh, that one book can change you because they really honestly can. Um, yeah. unfortunately though, there's so many students who are, um, not reading on their appropriate grade level, they're not proficient. We see the statistics, we talk about those tests of like what the third grade scores are, but you know what they are by the time they get to eighth grade. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, it's pretty alarming. Do you ever look at those statistics and kind of question what it is that you are doing or what is happening to be the reason why that we're still, you know, year after year, decade after decade, still seeing like these low reading proficiency
1: rates? Um, I see it as more of a challenge and I'm always up for the challenge. So I look at the scores at the beginning of the year. I'm very data driven because um, I would say 75% of my students come to me at in between a second and a fourth grade reading level. I usually only have one class that comes to me at grade level or above grade level. So I'm very data driven in that aspect. So I can really break it down and see what we need to do to get them to where they need to be. Um it is disheartening, but unfortunately the generation that I came into te- my generation of coming into teaching, it was like they prepared us um in school, in college to be disappointed, which it's the the superhero I want change for the world in me is like, no, that's not good enough. You know, that's not, that's not what our education system should be. Um, but what I've noticed as a teacher is sometimes the smallest um, victories are the biggest feats that we won. So just changing the live um, or the literacy of a handful of children is actually a huge deal. Um, so your change the world mentality is actually just right there in your classroom. Um, I'm probably going to use that quote
2: later the superhero says that's not good enough i love that so there is some action in the state of north carolina i think if we have been thinking about those kind of reading proficiency numbers there are a lot of people who have been aware of them Mm -hmm. and so it was introduced maybe in about march that they were going to do a systems change for how like the curriculum works and say we're going to do more of the science of reading based um instruction. And that was going to lead to, you know, changing how the curriculum is going and PD for uh, districts. And pretty quickly, I didn't even know this happened. I was watching it. Then I got busy. Then I woke up one day and it was done. Like they said, yes, like they being like the state, it's a law now. So have you heard um, about the kind of new push for the, the science of reading instruction? Not necessarily Uh, you know, sit, have a library in your class, but actually, you know, in the younger years, like teach students about all the things that kind of move into reading, like those five things of not just phonics, but understanding morphemes, phonemes, and all of that, all of that. Have you heard about this at all?
1: I have not heard about this, but I will definitely be curious to see what it entails and and what it involves and um, how it is rolled out. Um, I think that We definitely need to roll something out, um, especially after the pandemic and the year and a half that we lost um, for our students. Um, So I'll definitely be interested to see what that entails. And um, it's you said it was focused more towards the younger grades, the foundational years of learning. I think that's definitely um, in the right direction because they're not getting to sixth grade not able to read from, um, successful reading lessons in years prior. And, and that's not necessarily, that's not a stab at teachers by any means, but, um, it definitely is a stab at us needing to prepare teachers, um, in professional developments and, you know, teachers should never stop learning. So definitely preparing teachers more for those foundational critical years for sure. I think, uh, yeah,
2: absolutely. you got to start younger. It it feels to me, as I've kind of watched the numbers for a while, I don't know if you know this, but I used to teach high school English. Mm -hmm. And before that, I was a newspaper reporter. And I was always just very shocked when I would see, like, the reading scores. And I was just like, okay, at some point, they are going to do something. And then nothing really ever seemed to get done. You were talking about um, this idea of, like, uh, in the younger years and, and those interventions that could happen if you're thinking about sort of like what you've seen tell me a story maybe of like a student that you said you said most of your your students are not coming in on grade level have Correct. you had any student who um you've been you know sister was it Mary? yes <laughs> Mary too like tell me a little bit about the the way you've been able to impact students in your classroom
1: um so I'm I would say I'm very much unconventional. Um I don't go back in 6th grade even though a student would need phonemic awareness or need that phonics or even so much as something as crucial as blending skills. I can't go back and read to a 6th grader the cat in the hat. What 6th grader is going to um sit there and read the cat in the hat with me. And, and that's also demeaning, you know, that's like me saying like, I don't have enough faith in you. So we're going back all the way to square one. Um, so I take, I try to find that book that interests them or a b- book that isn't boring. Sometimes I've even um, I even have one student where I could not get him to read, and I just knew he could grow because that's another thing—maturity um, level on sixth graders. You know, it's higher, so you can you can talk to them a lot different. You could you can if you work hard enough, you can grow a sixth grader two or three grade levels in reading um, because you can talk to them at a different level than you are a kindergartner, a first grader, a second grader. So we pulled out some ESPN passages, you know, and I was able to teach them phonemic awareness and, um, you know, rules of phonics through an ESPN passage. And I think that's something that is really missing in the education system is we are expecting um, in order to get our students caught up later in life, we're expecting them to do the same worksheets, work passages and learning that our kindergartners, first and second graders are like no middle school or high schoolers doing that. We have to meet them where they're at and, and cut them more credit than that. You know, like they're, <laughs> we're not going to de- demean them in that way and be like, oh, we're going to give you this baby work. That's what they will tell you. They'll be like, I'm not doing this baby work. And, and they don't want to hear about the cat in the hat. They want to hear about you know, Michael Jordan or Kobe going into the Hall of Fame. So just really incorporating um, intervention work in modern day text or on grade level text so that they don't, they don't feel stupid. I am
2: trying in this, in this particular podcast to just bring uh, to light this idea of reading proficiency and what's at stake if we don't quite get it right. And so I think your story is um, very compelling from the fact that you kind of in the middle of it all it could have went in a different direction right if yeah. you didn't have the the intervention that you had and then the trajectory change uh as a as a practitioner i would love you to tell kind of just what do you feel like is at stake if we don't get our reading proficiency higher that's just the number in general but what what are we losing what are students losing um, when they're not able to read and they end up you know, in high school, reading on the fifth grade level or in middle school and still stuck on the third grade level? Um, I
1: think, and I I don't know, sometimes I'm like in my head and I'm like, am I the only one that feels like this is common sense? Um, I think that education next to national security is the most important thing for our country. So what is an uneducated country gonna look like in five or ten years from now? Because that's when we we started seeing this decline, you know, about a decade ago. So we're gonna start really seeing a decline in our country. I mean, if you don't have a literate country, where are the jobs at? Where are the jobs going to be? Um, how are we gonna educate future generations if we don't have any teachers to read? Like it just seems really like common sense to me, but I guess it's not because we're not taking it seriously. Um, This is going to be a huge issue in our country if our country is unable to read um, within the next five years, 10 years. Um, We see time and time again that like politicians often I think that, I think there was a statistic that said like 40% of um, politicians came from private schools, but we cannot, we cannot count on that. We can't count on all of our students or all of America coming from private schools. So we really need to, we need to really put stock in our, our public education system. And um, oftentimes I think that we have good intentions and, you know, we have certain school districts like Charlotte Mecklenburg schools that are trying so hard, but their hands are tied. I mean, like just even with the budget cut and, um, you know, consistency in what we're doing and giving the opportunity for things that we're implementing to give them time to work a little bit. Um, but really, yeah, we have to, this is an emergency situation. I mean, we really should be worried and, and we should be, frantically trying to find solutions so that um we don't see a downfall in our country because I don't want to I don't want to think about what our country would be like if as a whole we're illiterate
2: I think you you hit the nail on the head like this is our future at stake and yes. if we're not paying attention then what are we creating literacy Always tied to liberation, and if you don't, if you're not able to read well and to understand um, what's out there, then you actually really seriously just become um, somebody else's footstool or tool. Oh yeah. In that case, so let me ask you because I know uh, we're our time is winding up. Is there uh, a book other than the one that you mentioned, "The Summer I Turned Pretty," (laughs) that you Mm -hmm. recommend to students? Like, what are your students reading right now that you feel like really is connecting with them? as they kind of enjoy their journey
1: as readers? Um, I have two books that I start out reading for sixth graders. Um, middle School is the worst years of my life. It's really funny and they're able to connect. Um, and then Ghost by Jason Reynolds. Jason Reynolds um, is a phenomenal, I'm like his number one fan, such a fangirl over him. Um, he's my favorite reader, uh, our favorite author. Um, and he, Writes so well. Um, All of my students are able to relate to him in some form or another. And then he also has books that are wonderful for adults. Um, I know that as a white woman reading some of his books um, at an adult level, it really helped me open my eyes to some things racially, um, where I was able to become more racially aware in some aspects of how um, things that African Americans have to deal with in our country and how Um, it just gave me perspective from, um, a black person as a white woman in America. So I just, I can't say enough about him. I also love him because, um, he I went and saw him as a keynote and he his first thing was um, out of his mouth rap taught me how to read and he was reading like the ch- track list um, the lyrics for Queen Latifah so I was like you already got me I'm mesmerized and um, from then we we go through so many of his books in my classroom but Ghost by Jason Reynolds is phenomenal and Brave As You Are by him also a phenomenal but All-American Boys like changed my life and changed my thinking as a white woman here in America.
2: Well, I'm gonna leave it at that. Stephanie, thank you. I appreciate what you're doing in your classroom. I thank you for taking your time for the podcast as we looked at literacy, uh reading proficiency and what can be done. It's always good to hear it from the classroom perspective. But then definitely as a person who's lived this experience, it's really great to kind of see what could happen when we um have a teacher who can step in and say, let's let's change this and see the great things that are to come thank you and thank you for having me and thank you for joining us for this episode of on the Margins. we'll be back next time for more stories about education equity in north carolina